You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. An episode of the TV program The West Wing features three candidates running in the Iowa caucuses. One, the vice president, embraces ethanol with gusto to the delight of his staff and adoring corn farmers. The second, played by Jimmy Smits. He kind of reluctantly goes along with ethanol. He gets a little of the Hawkeye love. But the third, Alan Alda plays him. The third says ethanol is a waste. And they should be ashamed of themselves for seeking government subsidies. Ha! That Hollywood is something else, right? That doesn't happen in the real world, does it? Well, I must admit, I'm a bit of an Arnie Vinnick fan. That's the television character played by Alda. Maybe because Alda plays him, but also because he's a truth-telling politician. But do Vinnicks exist in the real world? Isn't it true that the narrative of the West Wing show is right? When you come to Iowa and run for president, you take the ethanol pledge. GOP candidates Romney, Gingrich, Santorum, Perry all back the government policies that add up to billions of dollars the tax credit to ethanol blenders, the tariff to protect domestic corn growers, the mandates to use oxygenates like ethanol in gasoline, credits for biofuel experimentation. We line up our candidates to run for pander-in-chief, don't we? Case in point, Bill Bradley called ethanol highway robbery when he was opposing them in the Senate. Why not? He was a senator from New Jersey. No ethanol there. When he challenged Vice President Gore for the 2000 Democratic nomination, he switched his position. Gore made a lot of hay of that. Hillary Clinton votes against several ethanol bills as a New York senator. That's no problem. In 2008, she changes. I had to look out for the interest of the constituents I had at the time, she says. Barack Obama supports ethanol full throat and jumps on Clinton for being a flip-flopper. How can we trust her other stands on issues, Obama says. Iowa is everything for the Obama team. His surprise win there makes it a contest. He is president, and ethanol is well-established policy of the United States government. President Obama justifies his ethanol support on indisputable premises. There can be no doubt that America can grow corn. Lots of it. We don't seek corn from other nations that might be hostile to us. It's hard to doubt the science that says oil pollutes when refined. But fermenting corn and making grain alcohol... Ethyl alcohol doesn't hurt the environment. So if you keep things there, you know, policy can be about what you focus on. Keep the discussion there, and ethanol makes powerful sense. And good politics, which is why all the common presidential names since the Carter administration's first foray into corn gas policy. Gary Hart, Mike Dukakis, Walter Mondale, Bob Dole, Richard Gephardt, Liz Dole, John Kerry, Mike Huckabee, Howard Dean, Joe Biden. Everyone takes the pledge. Thus, our presidents come out pro-ethanol. Obama's support for ethanol is no policy change. The Bush administration was the same. But the current president makes clear his opposition to ending the subsidies now. He hints at asking for E15, 
That's 5% more ethanol and gas. He appointed the former governor of Iowa as his ag secretary, right there guaranteeing that his agriculture department will construct pro-ethanol policy. Now add to this that President Obama supports other alternative energies, not just ethanol. Wind and solar are among the businesses he had issued grants to. Add to this that it's an administration that has spent $700 billion to stimulate the economy. $6 billion doesn't look like a place to cut. And add to that that the current climate is no jobs are bad, no jobs can be lost. And this leader of the free world won't aim his cannon at a program that even if there is no energy benefit, as some contend, could be seen as a New Deal jobs program for the Farm Belt. Another angle here. Much is made of the president's identity as the first African-American president. Less is discussed about his identity as a Midwesterner. Illinois neighbors, Iowa, and at host, Archer Daniels Midland, large ethanol producer. Ethanol is as Midwest as any issue. It makes little sense in California or New York. But the senators of Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, Kansas, and the two Dakotas are 12 guaranteed senators for ethanol policy. Missouri, Minnesota, Indiana can bring another six. So not surprising when earlier this year the subsidies were threatened. Senators from these states opposed, and President Obama backed up these Midwestern senators with a veto threat. Beyond the Iowa caucuses which alone can't change policy. The idea of the Constitutional Convention that every state has two senators, regardless of size, has helped propel biofuels. The Senate would, as designed, protect a narrow interest that would not survive in the population at large. It was supposed to be to stick up for the interests of little states like Delaware, Rhode Island, Connecticut, as opposed to the giant states of Virginia that they thought would overwhelm them if everything was based on population. This is one of those narrow interests that comes out of that Senate system. And another factor beyond the Iowa caucus is the role of the state recently in general elections as well. Sure, it's only a small amount of electoral votes, but we've had some narrow elections in 2004. 08 didn't turn out that way, but it was sure comforting for the Obama campaign to take that state off the table. Truth-telling John McCain, after all, was like Arnie Vinnick. He was loosely based on, right... John McCain was anti-ethanol. Nearly cost him the Republican nomination after Huckabee won Iowa. Obama carried Iowa in the general election, a gain from the 2004 election when President Bush was running. Even the most pro-Obama analyst will say 2012 will be closer than 2008, certainly. I wouldn't expect any change in his politics now, as Iowa will be once again critical. So far, we've kept this story in the narrative you know. King corn, politicians pander and play along. These politicians tell Midwesterners what they want to hear and all of that. And there's something obvious to all of this. Mitt Romney, pro-business, generally free market type, is stopped by an Iowan in a Des Moines sidewalk who hands him a typewritten note asking for his policy on ethanol. I am for ethanol subsidies, Romney simply says. Though later he's clarified and said he doesn't think they would should last forever, but done. His admission ticket to the Iowa caucuses is paid. No problem with Gingrich. He's always been a supporter. So that's that one story, the story of pandering and for politics, right? But there's another way the story could be told, and that is from the longer view, that of an industry crushed by a larger industry. The first car invented in Germany in the 1880s ran on ethanol. Well, they just called it alcohol then. Some early American cars ran on alcohol as well, but for the most part, they ran on petroleum-based fuels. 
gasoline among them. Why? Well, that was being used for lamps anyway. Why? Because a tax going all the way to the Civil War taxed the alcohol industry, beverage alcohol, and also industrial alcohol didn't make a distinction. That made alcohol unaffordable as a fuel. Theodore Roosevelt realized this and in 1906 asked Congress to repeal the tax for manufacturing alcohol, industrial purposes, which included car engines, among other things. Standard Oil, he said, had a monopoly or was rapidly developing a monopoly on oil. And it was time to introduce new fuels. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Model T's were made to run on a mixture of gas and alcohol. Henry Ford called alcohol the fuel of the future. Didn't necessarily limit that to corn-based alcohol, Cars, he said, could run from almost any vegetable. Oil companies, Standard Oil, Sunco, realized the danger and went after alcohol as fuel and anyone supporting it. Farmers, they said, would make motorists pay for farm relief. That was the headline in a story that the American Petroleum Institute had put into magazines and newspapers all across the country in the 1930s. Senator Everett Dirksen, then he was just a congressman, from Illinois, a supporter of corn alcohol fuel, wrote a letter to his constituents complaining to them that he was being harassed and investigated by private investigators working for Sun Co. Oil. Yes, in this narrative, big oil killed King Corn. And all we did in recent years, if you look at it that way, is bring things back. There is another nation where this debate occurred and alcohol won out. After the 1975 oil shocks, Brazil instituted a mandate. Gas stations must carry alcohol gas, and tanks in cars must be able to adapt to alcohol as a fuel. It works pretty well right now. In Rio and Sao Paulo, motorists have a cheaper option than oil now. Yet Brazil differs from Iowa. Sugarcane is what they use to make their ethanol, not corn, and it's plentiful and low cost. Brazil's rain-soaked fields require no irrigation. Irrigation is expensive. The government has established the infrastructure in order to transport alcohol. One of the disadvantages of using ethanol as a fuel, it certainly can be used to propel an engine, but it is hard to distribute. It mixes easily with water. And water does get into pipes, so you can't use the type of pipes that they use to transport oil. A lot of it has to be trucked. Brazil has that infrastructure set up. Brazil does not subsidize ethanol. The mandates create enough demand for it to become the world's largest producer. So there's no debate there as whether the government should be paying in a subsidy for ethanol. Brazil would gladly give some of their ethanol to us too. But we put a tax on their ethanol. And support for that tariff is part of the ethanol pledge, just as much as support for the subsidies are. When President Bush talked about easing the tariff, not easing the subsidy, but easing the tariff and allowing Brazil ethanol to come in, candidate Obama attacked him sharply for it. 
Brazil shows that at least in that country with a plentiful crop and an urban population where you can get the product to them easily, ethanol is a realistic way to power cars. Yet the story isn't all positive. Environmentalists point to land use deforestation in order to make room for sugarcane. A study from the University of Kassel in Germany suggests that sugarcane farms replaced cattle ranges. That required ranches and other industries to clear land, costing an amount of rainforest the size of New York and New Jersey combined. Brazil's program looks good now that alcohol sells far cheaper than gasoline there. But in the 1980s and 1990s, when gas prices were low, the program looked like ridiculous socialism. Yet Brazil held on to the policy of mandating the presence of alcoholic gas stations. In the long term now, that looks like a wise decision. Most of us are already driving car with some type of fermented corn, ethanol, E10, which means 10% alcohol is the most common in gas. The U.S. requires an oxygenate in order to allow the fuel to burn cleanly, smoothly. Ethanol works, and ethanol is used in most cases. 13 billion gallons of ethanol were produced in 2010, the result of this mandate. Indeed, the mandate of using an oxygenate in fuel may provide the industry sufficiency and turn the corner on the subsidy debate. Earlier this year, Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty went to Iowa, and there, in front of Iowans, he told them the truth. Subsidies must be phased out. This was part of a truth-telling campaign. He was about to go to Florida and tell Social Security recipients they had to be cut. Phase-out is not the same as eliminate. He just said they should phase-out subsidies. And given the mandate, even some of the ethanol industry agrees that subsidies should be faded out. It didn't work out for Tim Puente. He lost the Iowa straw poll, left the race. Perhaps he wasn't the right messenger. Indeed, because of the obviousness of the ethanol pledge and all the publicity about the pandering, there's almost a sub-primary for who will be the truth-telling candidate. They may not win Iowa, of course, but they'll get an even amount of support from an adoring press nationally for telling the truth. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Indeed, not everybody backed King Corn this year. Ron Paul, who may do well in Iowa due to the zeal of his supporters and his activist base there, backs no subsidies at all. So ethanol's included in that. 
Michelle Bachman, same thing, voted against an ethanol farm bill earlier this year. Really, these energy forms should survive on their own. Non-candidate Sarah Palin also opposed ethanol subsidies. In a way, the counter-ethanol movement is kind of getting attractive now. Not so much for Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich goes with a standard ploy on ethanol. He's crazy about it. Ethanol, he says, means no one in the Middle East crowd can kick us around or blackmail us. That's a big argument for ethanol, that corn-based fuel really is a national security issue. After all, compared to the defense budget, a good amount of which is spent to protect oil supplies, right? Subsidies for ethanol are nothing. $6 billion for subsidies to blenders. President Bush had a similar take on it. Ethanol means we have to seek less oil from people who do us harm, he said. Even Howard Dean, from the other side of the aisle, had a similar tale, saying he'd rather American corn farmers make money than Middle East cheeks. You can't argue with the basic logic, corn is American. Only a little of the oil is. The trouble is that there isn't enough biomass in the United States, even all of it. All of the farmable land was used to make corn for ethanol. We'd still need oil. And of course, we can't do that. But, you know, you can argue that perhaps it helps. It goes towards, so we use less oil, of course. National Corn Farmers Association says ethanol keeps gas prices lower. One, because you're adding 10% of it to gas, and also because it's an option that's there in the market. There's a debate over the energy ratio, and that is, does ethanol cost as much in energy to make the ethanol as it actually produces? That is the assertion of candidate Vinnick in the West Wing program. And it's often discussed, but recently the federal government has calculated that ethanol makes more energy than it costs in energy to make it. Federal government says it's an energy ratio of 1.25. That is still pretty low. It's a very lossy type of fuel, and it does not produce as much energy per gallon as gasoline. In terms of the environment, it doesn't harm the environment, as we indicated, to ferment corn. But it does pollute once you burn it in the engine. And there's even one study that indicated that if we had all cars running on ethanol, that the ozone layer would be depleted. That, of course, is debated. But there's no debate that there is pollution coming from ethanol cars as much as it's coming from oil-based. Some argue that the price of food has gone up because we're producing so much corn for ethanol. And the price of corn per bushel has gone up from about $1.85 in 2000 to $5.85 today. Now, there's other factors. There's the petroleum price. Critics say, though, that the subsidies for ethanol are driving up livestock prices around the world because the feed corn used for ethanol is also what feeds cattle. This contention has led one frequent booster to change his mind. Former Vice President Al Gore, who used ethanol, among other issues, to defeat Bill Bradley in that 2000 caucus, now has reconsidered his support. Subsidizing corn ethanol, he says, was a mistake. Instead, Gore points to switchgrass ethanol. Switchgrass are very plentiful plants that could be easily found in a lot of the Midwestern U.S. and other places that is not eaten as food, grows plentifully, and produces a lot more energy than corn ethanol. A bipartisan effort by liberals and conservatives is now working to end subsidies. Pete Stark of California, Jason Shavertz of Utah, conservative and a liberal leading the coalition. Of course, Corn growers point to oil companies. Look at the subsidies there, they say. Yes, there's $6 billion for ethanol. In fact, calculating what is a subsidy to the oil industry is difficult. They argue that their ability to deduct is no different than many other industries have. There's at least $21 billion in subsidies to oil companies. Of course, Americans use more gasoline than they use ethanol. Which narrative wins? 
The story of politicians going to one state and shamelessly pandering, or the example of an industry killed by oil fighting its way back. I see no reason to choose. Some politicians look silly coming to Iowa, donning everything but a pitchfork and overalls, and pledging to King Corn. On the other hand, we did create an alternative energy source, and that's been a national goal. But it's not one that we can imagine solving our problems. This is a program of politics. The art of the possible, right? And if you mix your desire to create an American fuel, if you mix your desire to help the environment by refining less oil, if you mix your desire to reduce our dependence on Middle East nations, and if you want to mix all that with a healthy respect for real politic, corn-based gas was the one biofuel that had the political juice. Solar, wind, electric cars didn't have the kind of support in the Senate one of the important bodies for spending our national money, that ethanol did. Maybe the political precedent of some kind of biofuel, which happened to be corn because the political juice was there, was a benefit established. And while corn clearly isn't the answer, maybe switchgrass or something else will be. And of course, if petroleum gas ever gets to eight bucks a gallon here in the States, will we still think the idea of ethanol is a mistake? Applying a pure libertarian point of view, free trade should dictate. And if a fuel survives, it has to survive on its own. The government should not be subsidizing it. Unsubsidized gasoline is probably going to win until the point at which we need something else because prices have gone up too much. That's pure libertarian. If you add the foreign policy dimension, sure, we have no beef with Canada, but most of the other oil producers create problems for us on the world stage. And especially, they get more powerful, especially when oil prices are high. In a sense, we're talking about corn, but we are really not talking about corn at all. We're talking about the role of government versus the free market. Do we accept some of the big hand of government to place covenants on top of that free market system that we embrace for a national purpose that we all agree on, all of our representatives agree on, a majority of our representatives agree on? It's not likely that this issue will be resolved in Iowa in January at all. But it's something that we as a nation need to think about. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We've redesigned that website. There is a Facebook site, fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Join the robust discussion there. The archives are available for $14.99. Again, most of what we've published. As a longtime foreign correspondent... I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.